0: Raise your hand if you've heard of Back to the Bible. There's a far-reaching radio ministry. They have some other ministries as well, but a far-reaching radio ministry that has a reputation for bringing the message of God's Word to people across the radio airwaves. And so when I got a call a couple weeks ago um, that we had the possibility of having uh, John Newfelt, who's the radio voice, the radio preacher, the Canadian radio preacher for Back to the Bible, uh, Eva and Heather can tell you that I was walking on a cloud when I came into them to tell them the news. We were eager to uh, welcome them, but here's the honest truth: I didn't know much about John Newfeld at that time. Uh, I knew the people who were recommending him, and I trusted them, but I didn't know him. This weekend, I've gotten to know him by sitting under his preaching at the Gospel Coalition Conference, which was rich rich exposition of God's word that was soul-penetrating and powerful. But also, I got to uh, sit close to him and watch who he was. And this was the moment for me. Um, Somebody was talking to me just across the table from him and said that John Neufeldt was the best preacher in all of Canada. And you could tell how uncomfortable that statement made John. And uh, that just said something to me about what other people have testified to his character, that he's a humble, gentle man who doesn't think much of himself but thinks much of God. And so John, I'm so glad you're here. You can come forward and preach to us. And I'd also just encourage you, they have a booth set out back. If you don't know about Back to the Bible or want to learn more, please do that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well Pastor James, I think by the time I'm done most of the people are going to say if this is the best guy that's in the country, we are in a lot of trouble in this land. So Um, it's great to be here. Uh, joy to be uh, back in Ontario again. And uh, I must say, as a Western Canadian, I really do love uh, Ontario. Um, and it's strange that I would say that because if you know anything about Western Canada, and and I uh, grew up in uh, in uh, the Lower Mainland of British Columbia, close to Vancouver and uh, Vancouverites for some reason are all trained to hate Ontario early on and I, I just never stuck with me uh, I was in a, uh, in a Bible study the other day and I just told everyone you know I'm going back to Ontario and I love it whenever I'm back there because it just feels like Canada's heartland and it felt like I had just thrown a stink bomb into the <laughs> into the into the room and uh, nonetheless all that being said <laughs> we are a strange country don't you think uh, but anyway, I, I, come, I do come representing Back to the Bible. I'm going to get to the Word in just a bit. Uh, Back to the Bible is heard on 96 stations across the country. Um, and uh, we, uh, we did a cross-Canada tour a couple of months ago, Ben. I don't, can't remember now which month that was in. It was in June, was it? Yeah. And uh, it was remarkable to have gone into one place and just have a woman come to me just unknown and just threw her arms around me which you know really isn't supposed to happen and and she started weeping and said i just came to the lord through the radio broadcast and just wanted to say thank you so much and i'm just overwhelmed at the hearts and lives of people that we're uh, touching um we are heard i know in this area i think on joy 1250 and we're heard also on wdcx i think that's uh, from Buffalo, New York. So I think those two stations were heard on. And I know also that uh, the podcasts are growing continually. Ben says we're kind of at an all-time high on podcasts right now, people signing up for that. So you can just go onto our website and encourage you to do that. And that's the ad that I have. But anyway, it is joy to be here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible, if you would, please, to First Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. And I'll read that text. And, uh, and then after we've uh, read that, we'll consider some of the contents. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 and then down to verse 20. Uh, just a few short verses. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding, fa- holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Now, I wish I could say that, you know, the Christian faith is all about just good feelings and the fulfillment of every dream that we've ever had. Uh, One day we're going to stand in glory, and indeed, it will be the fulfillment of all that we have ever hoped for. But at this time, the time in which we now live, the Christian faith is, as you know, about warfare. You know, when I graduated from seminary, and I now think that it was back when dinosaurs still walked the earth, but when I graduated from seminary, you know, I don't know that I was taught that the Christian ministry, and Pastor James will say this, it is battle. We are called upon to fight a warfare, and by the time anyone is done, in Christian ministry or in lay ministry, I mean, whatever ministry that you are in, you will, like any soldier, suffer the wounds of battle. And it is a telling part of Scripture, and we are naive to think that we engage in the Christian life without being called into warfare. Now, I have for many years now, and I don't know exactly why, because I'm a Canadian through and through, but for many years, for some reason, I have been fascinated with the Civil War in the U.S. that was fought, as you know, from 1861 to to 1865. And in the U.S., those four years of Civil War were especially tragic. It seems interesting to me that the formation of our country was two years later. And I, I think the two events are in some way correlated with one another, but I won't go into that. But I have been fascinated with the U.S. Civil War because in the four years in which it was fought, The population of the United States at that point in time was then roughly equivalent to the population of Canada today. And the amount of deaths from soldiers in the Civil War numbered about 620,000 deaths. If you can imagine, it was a cataclysm. All of the other engagements that the United States has been involved in has not corporately had that kind of a death rate as was had in in the Civil War. The first battle in the Civil War was held about 50 miles out of Washington, D.C. And it was called either, it depends on which side that you were on, it was called either, if you were on the north, it was called the Battle of Manassas or the Battle of Bull Run if you were on the south. And it's a fascinating battle. It was held just outside of a little town of Manassas, as I said, about 50 miles out of Washington, D.C. And all of the, the important people, I mean, the wealthy individuals, politicians, and their wives, and everyone who was someone came out to view the battle. They, they came on, on horses with wonderful uh, chariots behind them, and uh, they were on the side of a hillside. They put out their blankets. They brought their luncheon for a meal, much in the same way as you might watch a sporting event. They believed at that point in time, that is the north did, that the south was so undermanned and understaffed and unwilling to fight in a warfare, this would be a short skirmish. When it was over, the south would immediately surrender and at the end of that they would cheer their conquering troops home and they would have a party. And so they came and and sat on the hillside, and the ladies, you can imagine them in that day with the umbrellas against the sunlight, and and they were going to watch in their dainty fashion the wonderful triumph of their troops. Well, before the battle was over, already the, the lines on both sides had been breached, meaning there was a bloody bloody conflict between them... and in short order, 3,000 men already lay dead on the battlefield. The Union troops then ran in terror... All the way back to Washington, all the nobility and everyone else began to flee in their own horses, mixed up with their troops. There was blood and there was horror all around them as they shrieked, suddenly realizing that this was no sporting event. This was warfare. This was battle. And the battle cry is a bloody cry. See, the image of the battlefield, of soldiers, warfare is a common image that you will find throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. The Christian life is a call to battle. Remember, for instance, in Ephesians six twelve to 13, the we- very well-known passage, which I'm sure many of us can recite, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. See, I want to invite you to consider your life as a soldier on the battlefield of truth, the battlefield that Christ has called us. On the one side of the line, of course, is the prince of darkness. Jesus called him the father of lies and it is his specialty to slander and to lie. And to abuse the truth. On the other side are those who have been the elect of God. Who are called upon to fight for the truth of the gospel. And every child of God has been called into this fight. It doesn't matter who you are. Moms and dad. You have been called upon to fight the battle for the truth of the gospel for your children. They grow up in a culture in which they are consistently being told to adopt a value base that will differ from that of Christ. You will fight for their future. I remember as Kathy and I were having kids, I mean when our kids were little in our home, and our ministry was growing, and God was blessing the ministry that I had, Kathy and I would often get on our knees and we would simply say, Lord, we don't care if we succeed in everything else, we're not raising these kids for the evil one." We pray, O Lord God, preserve their souls. I trust that you're doing that as well. You are, if you're a mom and dad and grandparents as well, you are on the battlefield for the truth of the gospel for your children. Same is true if you're working in the youth department here. You're a Sunday school teacher. Even in the workplace that you're at, no matter where God has called you, He has called you onto the battlefield. And when anyone enters into service of Jesus, this struggle becomes deadly. So look back at what we've read. Verse 18, I'll start there again. This charge I entrust to you. Paul is writing to Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There's the the language that we have. So I want you to notice here as we've read this verse that Paul is giving a charge to Timothy. Go back to verse 3 of this passage and we'll try to get some context here. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, writes Paul, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So that's the background of this book. The Apostle Paul writes 1 Timothy. It's one of the last books that he's written. He writes them to his protege, Timothy. I'll say a little bit more about him in just a little while. But he writes to him, uh, Paul has been in prison. It would appear that he has been released from prison in Rome. For a period of time, he is free to carry on ministry in some fashion. But he hears a report now that the church in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, has has elders in the church who are teaching false doctrines and leading the entire church astray. Paul would have gone there himself. But for some reason, he doesn't tell us why, but he can't go. And so he rather sends Timothy on his behalf and says, Timothy, I want you to go there. Your job when you go to Ephesus is to take on the rulers, the leaders of that local church who are teaching error. Your job is to bring them to repentance, correct the doctrine that they are giving, and lead that church back into the pathway of truth. Now, how many of you would like an assignment like that, going to a local church? Do you think that you'd receive wounds and bruises before you were done? Do you think there would be slander against you before you were done? Can you only imagine what would be said about you before you were done? Who does he think he is coming into this setting doing these kind of things? That's what Paul had done there. Now notice again as you look at verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. Now you know what the charge is. And notice also that the word here is I entrust it to you. That word entrust is in fact a legal word. It refers to something that is left in someone else's care. If you're a legal guardian, you have been children have been entrusted into your care. I mean, imagine, for instance, your neighbor goes on a trip, and somehow he has entrusted his house into your care. And let's say there's even a legal document that you've signed that says, while you're gone, I'll make sure that the house that I own Will be cared for in the way that I would care for it if I were there. That's what we get this sense of what Paul is saying to Timothy. Whatever you do there, I have entrusted to you a task which would precisely be the task that I would do. Now, whenever you read the Bible, please remember that Paul holds an apostolic office. You know what I'm saying when I say that? As apostle, he writes sacred scripture. He comes speaking on behalf of God. Any local pastor today, that's their task, to teach that text which has once and for all been given. We have been entrusted with a task of declaring Scripture. As if Paul himself were here, we in fact are called upon to do that. All those who teach the Word are like that. So Timothy is charged with that task. Well, let's go beyond that. Notice also he says, This charge I I trust to you, Timothy, my child. So you know Timothy has been trained by the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was young. He learned the ministry under him. Paul then began to entrust certain tasks to him. And as he matured, he became ready for greater and greater tasks. So it would seem to me that as we read 1 Timothy, this is the greatest task that Timothy has ever gotten from his mentor before. Go into a church and put it back onto its proper footing. Now, notice also, as we say, do this, in this task, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, we might stop here and say, what prophecies are we talking about? I want you to go forward to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, and please notice it there. In chapter 4, verse 14, we read, do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you. By prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So I think what Paul is referring to here is Timothy's calling in the first place. There would have been some kind of an ordination service, however that was held in the early church. And so you have a council of elders that would have laid hands on them. And you ask, well, what kind of prophecies would have been given? And of course, we're not told. But it seems very likely to me that the prophecies that would have been given to Timothy would have been prophecies that encouraged him to be faithful to the task God had charged him no matter what. I remember I used to have a seminary professor who used to tell us on a regular basis, when God calls you to ministry, he calls you to warfare. Now, this, this professor did talk to us about the warfare that we would have, and he said, it's kind of like if you've been called to the battlefield and you're commanding General has said to you, You hold Hill 57 so that when your general comes back, he will find you holding Hill 57 or dead on top of it. You will not desert your charge. And I think what uh, Paul is telling Timothy at this very vital moment in which the souls and the lives of an entire church are at stake when I come there, when I hear what's happened, you will hold it no matter how difficult it becomes. Or you'll be found dead in that place. But as a matter of fact, you will do that. So when we read this, that, you know, Paul says that previously, remember this, Timothy, about the prophecies made about you. I am sure that this is the kind of thing that Paul is reminding him of. And then, of course, he tells him to wage the warfare. And now, let's just backtrack for a moment and let's remember what we've learned. Christian ministry, no matter what it is, whether it's pastoral ministry, whether it's ministry in your home, whether it's declaring Christ at your workplace, whether you have an extended family where you might be the only believer that's there, whether you're entrusted with the youth of this church and helping, guiding them through their adolescent years, whatever God has called you to do, and God has a calling for each one of us, remember this, that God has entrusted all of His ministers to fight for the truth. That is your calling. This is a part of your initial calling when he called you to Christ. There are no non-combat members in the body of believers. We are not called upon to flee from the line in the day of battle. So let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. You should know, and some of us sometimes say, can you believe the day in which we live in? There's so much heresy going on in this world. So much false teaching. You turn on the radio, there's false teaching there. I'm trying not to be a part of that. I'm just telling you that, right? But you'll, you know, there's so much in terms of the media that leads everyone astray. I mean, all of this false teaching, it must be a sign that we're in the end times. Well, we are in the end times. We've been in the end times since the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. But let me tell you this. There has always been A battle for the truth. Read the later epistles in your New Testament. What are they all about? They're all about fighting heresy. That's what they're all about. If you know anything about the history of the church, and let me give you a little hint. You know, you no doubt I've seen your statement of faith as Fellowship Baptist, and it's a great statement of faith. I need to say that. I commend it to you. Do you know that historically we did not get statements of faith that stated the truth of what believers believed by simply theologians getting in a, you know, in a back room somewhere and you know, in this wonderful erinic setting beginning to write out the truths of the Christian faith in some kind of a format where everyone could understand. That's not how it came. Every single doctrine that we hold came through battle. That's how we got it. Let me tell you about something that happened in A.D. 325. It was called the Council of Nicaea. Where there were already heretics beginning to say that Jesus is not God. He was simply a created being. And so at that place in Nicaea, strong champions for the truth. A man by the name of Athanasius. If you've never heard of him, you'll hear of him when you get to heaven. You would not hold so firmly to the doctrine of the Trinity. Were it not for Athanasius, who paid a horrible price for defending the truth of the gospel way back in A.D. 325. I think he was kicked out seven times out of a local church. I think he was banished from the empire. That's what Athanasius suffered in 325. Or let me take you forward to the early 400s, where a man by the name of Augustine did battle with a heretic by the name of Pelagius. And when we today talk about, I know that there is original sin, I was born into sin, we know it's taught in the Scripture. But Augustine fought for that, and it's because of that that we began to insist on it because of the false teaching that was going on. Fast forward a little bit further, all the way to the year 451 A.D. Church fought about the full deity and the full humanity of Christ. I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We hold that so solidly because false teachers were denying that and we had to pour through our Bible and prove that this is the nature of Christ. And then, of course, we go to the late Middle Ages, the 1500s, and we remember the story of the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. And how they fought for justification by faith. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith and by faith alone. We trust in the cross of Jesus that is our only hope for salvation. Do you think that we proclaim this so loudly for any other reason than this was being denied even by the church itself? And so brave, courageous men stepped to the fore and paid a horrible price as they fought for the truth that Scripture makes so plain. So when you now lead someone to faith in Christ, and they say, what must I do to know Christ? You simply say, well, let me tell you that Jesus died on the cross for you. And that he paid for all of your sins. And they're all covered by his blood. And if you today might respond to him simply by believing in his sacrifice on your behalf. And surrender your life into his hands. You can be born anew and you can become one of God's children. You know how to do that. Because men like that fought for that doctrine. So it would be overwhelmingly clear so that we would not. So that we would not hesitate for a moment to declare the truth. I am so thankful. Now, as I think about the battles that we're fighting today, see, I'm bringing all of this to the kind of battles that Timothy fought in the Ephesian church. Let me help you with that. Today, we have a number of battles, and and I think there are three primary ones. And the first is what we might call the battle for the Bible, which has been raging since the 1970s. Let me tell you a little story about this country. In the last 60 years in this country, we have lost in Canada... About 50% of all Canadians from Canadian churches, 60 years ago, 50% more of Canadians were going to church than are today. I mean, you think about it, 60 years ago, when it was Sunday, the roads were deserted and every Canadian was in church. And you say, well, what happened here? And some of us think, well, I know what happened. We became increasingly secular. And we became you know, increasingly enamored with all sorts of idols. Well, that's only half of the story. And let me say, it's probably not the important half of the story. See, we were asked uh, this weekend at the Gospel Coalition what actually happened to the evangelical church in Canada. How's it doing? And let me tell you that the evangelical movement in Canada today is making modest gains. We are, in fact, a growing, not a shrinking movement. So where did all this fallout happen? Well, it happened in what was called the mainline churches. Canada's mainline churches all drunk something called liberal theology in which they said that the Bible is not a revelation that has come down to us from God but rather that the bible is in fact the the record of individuals who try to understand god in the context of their culture, and sometimes they got it right, and sometimes they didn't, and they encourage us to try to understand God in the context of our own culture as well, so you could never stand up anymore and say, this is what God says, read it here in the pages of scripture, this is the word of the sovereign Lord that was being denied in all of the mainline churches at a given period of time all throughout the world. And something that began in the late 1800s began to take root in mainline churches across the land. These churches began to collapse in on themselves. And what we have seen in the last 60 years is the complete collapse of all of those who denied the authority of the Bible. The only churches that are left standing on their feet and growing are those that say simply, I know that every single word in this book can be trusted. When God speaks, he makes no mistakes. When God declares, he has given to us a book that can be trusted and that we can be, this book can be trusted when it speaks about salvation, but it can also be trusted when it speaks about history. It can be trusted when it speaks about any subject in which it addresses. We can stake our lives and our futures on this. So for anyone that says, you know, the church has got to change because culture around us is changing, listen, we've already been down that road. All those churches that have adapted their message to the culture are now no more. And the only ones that remain continue to stand on the gospel. So that's the first thing. That's the battle we're still engaged in in this hour, and that battle will be ongoing. Here's the second one as I see it. A second battle that I see it is the battle over the uniqueness of the Christian faith. In a country now which has become a country of pluralism. And before I came to back to the Bible Canada, I was pastoring a church in Burnaby, which is you know right next door to, to Vancouver. You can't really tell where Burnaby ends and Vancouver starts. And, and every given Sunday morning, uh, I would have my sermons translated into 12 different languages so we actually had translators that were in booths uh, out in another room and they had little TV screens and the TV screens, you know, they'd they'd see me and they'd also have my manuscript and uh, they would actually have the Bible open and they would be simultaneously translating into Mandarin or Cantonese or or Korean or Russian or all the other languages that we actually dealt with Arabic, uh, Farsi as well so this was going on so I always preached to what looked like a mini UN and it was fascinating to me and i found out that among the cultures of this world there is a desperation to hear something that they can live and die on see here's here's the lie that we're sometimes being fed today in a pluralistic culture we have to begin to open our hearts that maybe that other religions can also lead to god can i again emphasize what what Luke taught us that the apostles said very early on is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Christ is the only one who saves from human sin. And by the way, if you don't know it, most of the religions of the world don't have a sin consciousness. And those that do have no Savior. If you go to Islam, for instance... Islam simply teaches that Allah has a scale in his hand, So if your good deed outweighs your bad, you're going to be fine. There is no method whereby forgiveness of sins is to be had. The only message of reconciliation to God that there is in this world is the cross of Jesus Christ. And to fight for the uniqueness of that is the great fight in which we are engaged in today. So, we fight for the truth of the gospel and we fight for the uniqueness of Christ. And the third great area that we're fighting, and this is going to come as no shock to anyone, is we are fighting for holiness and sexual purity in the church today. It's not a shock, is it? I mean, everyone, I mean, we all kind of open up our ears and say, well, I know what the big deal is today. And the big deal is, you know, what are we going to do with homosexuality? And my point has always been, the issue is not, for, for the world, that's their issue. You want to hear our issue? Our issue is, the only legitimate expression of our sexual lives is within the confines of a marriage between one man and a woman who have a union with each other for life. That is our sexual morality, and we fight for that for our children, and we fight for that for all the people around us. I mean, I have a memory of, I'll never forget this, was a young woman who came to church for the first time ever, had never been to church. And by the way, the church that I had served for 15 years, we had conversions every single week. And I can never forget this young woman coming up. She had, um, she had um, a sexually tran- transmitted disease and it was very painful, and it was non-curable. And she came, and she wept. She was a beautiful young woman. And she said, if I had only gotten here earlier, and I would have heard this message, that the only place for the expression of sexuality is when a young man would have come to me and proposed marriage, and we would have gotten married, and that was the place. She said, I'd never have. Where were you? And for those of us who want to become silent and no longer speak, I want to tell you, this is not a message of damning others. This is a message of hope for the human race. This is a message of great joy. This is what keeps human families somehow intact, and it creates a culture whereby a culture can live. We need to stop apologizing for our ethic and fight for it. I'm arguing we don't crawl into a hole somewhere. We say, I will be proud of the declaration of Scripture and I will fight the battle. And I know that battles will require wounds and I recognize that hits will be taken. But I will be found faithful. See, when I read lines as I'm reading this here, look again at what we've read. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, you had a calling from God, and that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, you see that word, good warfare? Now, here's something I, I want to make sure that we understand. There is such a thing as bad warfare. You know what bad warfare is? You know, some people just love a good scrap and a fight. And we've all known about that. We've known about churches that love good scraps and fights. They kind of clear the floor every once in a while. And the real challenge for all of us to know is what is worth fighting for and what is not. See, it's very important for us, isn't it? There's got to be a good warfare. You know what bad warfare is? A little over a decade ago, we were fighting all over evangelical churches what were called the worship wars. That was bad warfare. I love, by the way, what you were singing. We sang a mighty fortress is our God. Now, it's one of my favorite. I mean, my mom was Lutheran, so I was raised to, to sing that. You know, my my dad was Mennonite, so my mom submitted to my dad. But in her heart, she was a Lutheran till the day she died. That's who she was. Right? We were the ones that rediscovered justification by faith. Just say it, right? Uh, that kind of a thing. So these kind of hymns were just very precious to me. Mighty fortresses are God, a bulwark never failing. See, I love that. So you're singing ancient Christian truth and putting it in a contemporary format see the battle to fight for were the lyrics that we sing that they're centered deeply and the grounded in the historic christian truths so that what we sing actually reflects the very thing that we hold so dearly see that was a battle we're fighting for the style of music my goodness i gotta tell you if tomorrow You know, zither music, you know, if you ever heard that stuff, I don't like it. I'm just saying. But, you know, if that becomes the popular thing, bring it on. That's what I'm saying. Provided that we sing the historic truths of Christ crucified for me and my response to him so that I find him altogether lovely. See, that's the truth to fight for. You know, I've known churches that have fought for, you know, the, 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 the color of the carpet. And my response is to say, that's it? You've forgotten what you were called for? That's called the bad fight. You know the bad fight is? When we hurt one another, when we continue to fight one another, and when we don't forgive each other from the heart, and we don't learn to love and to be reconciled, then we fight bad fights. But there are good fights to fight. There are battles that we are called to fight that we must not let go of. You know, one of those fights that we are fighting, and I'll use theological language, that we are to fight the battle for what we call the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, because in some evangelical circles, or so called evangelical circles, it's being called into question. It simply means that Christ died for my sins, and while on the cross, paid the penalty for my sins, which is eternal wrath from god that eternal wrath was poured out onto christ so he suffered and bled for me see some people are nowadays say well that sounds so violent you know so bloody and it sounds like god a warrior yes it does that's because sin is such an enormity before god and the cross teaches us that christ had to be sacrificed because that's how vile our sins are. That's how much had to be forgiven of you and I so that we could be reconciled to God. God didn't just sweep our sins under the carpet. No, no. Our sins are an atrocious statement. To fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is a sin more vile than a thousand Auschwitzes. Wow, did you hear what I said? To fail to love God is the ultimate sin. It is terrifying that we committed and Christ suffered and bled so that I, my sin could be taken care of I'll fight for that truth I will gladly be spoken ill of so that truth might live and prevail see those are the things that we end up saying these are the great battles that we are in so make sure that when you fight the fight it's a good fight now how do we know what else is a good fight look at verse 19 he says holding faith And here faith, I think, means the the sum total of of Christian truth. You know the Christian truth and you hold it, and then you hold it with a good conscience. That is, in the end of the day, you don't have your conscience bothering you. In the end of the day, you say, you know, it wasn't mean or nasty. I I fought for Christ. I didn't fight against flesh and blood. I, I fought for the truth of the gospel. And then, then, then watch what happens next. By rejecting this, that is, what is it people have rejected? Have they rejected the faith? Have they rejected the fight? Well, perhaps they've rejected both. But by rejecting this, watch this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. See, not knowing that you are engaged in war- warfare, to think that the Christian faith is simply a matter of stepping back and, and just enjoying the life of Christ, which we do. When we find Christ altogether glorious and more lovely than our own personal comfort and safety, that's the ultimate delight. But some people reject this. And they go to a life of ease. They make a shipwreck of their faith. And to watch this. Now Paul names them, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Now, this is such a fascinating statement. Now, now who are these guys, Hamanus and Alexander? Isn't this fascinating? Here we are 2,000 years later, don't know anything else about these two guys outside of this. I know that they have shipwrecked their faith. Well, I know a little bit more. See, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, I follow with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Well, maybe we'll go back to 16. We avoid irreverent babble that will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Who have swerved from the truth. Saying that the resurrection has already happened. And they're upsetting the faith of some. So there's false teaching going on. And I notice that in 2 Timothy. Alexander is no longer mentioned. So I've got to believe that one of two things have happened to Alexander. He's repented or he's dead. See, Paul says, I've handed them over to Satan. But here Hymenaeus has found another buddy because he seemed good at doing this, to finding a sidekick. And Paul says, I've handed him over to Satan. What does he mean? What he's actually meant is we've thrown them out of the fellowship of God's people. We've excommunicated them because we can tolerate a lot of things. We can tolerate an individual who has sinned against ourselves and they come in repentance and we'll say, you know what is the mark of our fellowship that we forgive one another and that we restore fellowship and that we're always a reconciling, forgiving, loving, including community. But what we cannot tolerate is that someone would begin to teach that which is not truth. It's not about personal opinions. No, no. There are some things that are not. See, every once in a while you hear somebody say, you know, not everything's black and white, and I agree. But I want to say back, not everything's gray either. Some things are black and white. The atoning work of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the necessity of us to recognize that we are on a road toward the wrath of God were it not for the mercy of God. See, all of this, all of this is what we must declare and paul says i hand i I, I, you need to force them out of the church see that's what timothy has gone there to do say listen if someone will not repent of openly teaching false doctrines it's not an unloving church that kicks them out how do i know that well look at the last part i've handed them over to satan watch this so they might learn not to blaspheme I'm going to stop there for a moment because, uh, in fact, that's going to be the end of what I'm going to say because there's something about this being taught not to blaspheme that sounds hopeful to me. Paul is saying sometimes when an individual sees the shock and the consequences of what their lives are coming to and they feel the wrath of Satan themselves, they might turn and come to Christ. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians twelve seven says, so to keep me from being too elated, By the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that is the ones he was receiving, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. And I'm going to say one final thing about the warfare that we're engaged in as believers. We're engaged in this warfare. And God, in his meticulous sovereignty, it is marvelous care for all of us, allows us to feel the wounds of battle for the truth of the gospel. So that we wouldn't become triumphalistic. So that we wouldn't be overly elated and say, we always get them and we're the best. So that we would remain the humble people of God. We are well served when we are the persecuted people of God. Because when we are persecuted, we do not respond in slander. We respond in kindness, continuing to make an appeal to individuals. Come. Come and be reconciled to God. For we have heard a voice from God and he has spoken. See, one of the great joys that I have as the Bible teacher at back to the Bible Canada is to call a nation back to the only source of truth that will save in the end. Would you remember to pray for us as we will remember to pray for you. And as we pray for one another, let me give you this charge. Stand strong in the faith. Continue to stand for Christ. Recognize that God has placed you into your community so that men and women might hear the truth of Christ. And as you battle for the truth, battle for the souls of people, our battle is with the weapons of love. Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous church. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for um, what you have done. I, I, see, I don't know what you've done in this church in the past. I only know that I have attended a worship service that seemed charged with the words of the Spirit, in which there was a warmth here that clearly told me that the Spirit of God exists here. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for Pastor James. Keep him safe in your loving arms. I pray that Pastor James and this congregation would continue to love each other and together take up the tools of warfare and fight for the gospel. Thank you for the day in which we live, O oh Lord God. We pray for a day in which it would be impossible to live in this country, Canada, without, ha- without having to decide what to do with Jesus. Oh, Lord God, may that day truly come. And so, Heavenly Father, guard your people in Jesus' name. Amen.